Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be a part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only get behind-the-scenes insights, bonus content, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of Avid Night Explorers. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Scrying, the official sister series of the Into the Night podcast. As always, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. In tonight's episode, we continue our exploration of the Tales from the Pizzaplex book series, delving into the seventh installment, Tiger Rock. It's a peculiar sensation to realize that we're only two books away from concluding this eight-part journey. As we embark on this discussion, I can't help but acknowledge the mixed emotions I have, both anticipation and a tinge of sadness at the impending farewell. The tale series has contributed valuable stories and characters to the lore, even while harboring reservations about certain aspects that have, at times, tested our patience, or the very least mine. But Overall, the tale stories have been a great addition to the lore, and I will miss covering them once we finish book 8. Reflecting on the evolution from our previous episode's coverage of book number 6, Nexi, I noted the unique strengths of the tale stories. In contrast to its predecessor, Fazbear Frights, tales demonstrated a more refined narrative style, offering nuanced and less fantastical tales. While Fazbear Frights reveled in boundless creativity, it struggled with maintaining a cohesive narrative and a consistent tone. The incessant experimentation, coupled with an unintentional prolongation of the series, eventually led to a noticeable decline in quality, marked by diminishing interest from the fanbase. After all, there is a reason why most people recall stories like Into the Pit, Count the Ways, and even lesser fond novellas like In the Flesh. Earlier entries in the series were a remarkable quality and brought with it the familiarity, the fun, and the scares of a traditional Scott Cawthon Finance of Freddy's project. But as it became increasingly apparent that the Fazbear Fright novellas were becoming less and less more about the stories and more so the ideas they presented to possibly become full addition to the lore, the less the novelty intrigued us, and the less people started to care about what was happening in them. Especially once people recognized the stories weren't taking place even in the same continuity to the games. Arguably, Tales is unique in that the novellas are primarily why most people cared about them. Oh sure, I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say people didn't care for the mimic in the epilogue story. But it's not as necessarily holding the entire series on its shoulders like the Stitch Race Stingers in Fazbear Frights were, which 
The Stitch Ray Stingers practically carried the series even after it became clear it overstayed its welcome. Tales, arguably, didn't need an overarching story as the novellas themselves connected with each other already in clear and apparent ways. Plus, the stories themselves were interesting and engaging with their ideas and lore and characters, enough that they really don't require some epilogue gimmick to make the books worthwhile. They're good on their own. For Fazbear Frights, only the epilogue stories were what kept people motivated in keeping up with the series, which, after the man in room 1280 left a large amount of the fanbase disappointed with its seemingly non-existent answers in regards to William Afton, Golden Freddy, and Ultimate Custom Knight, which were all big questions at the time, the series practically committed suicide once William Afton subsequently combusted, and then became a trash monster, and then was penultimately destroyed before the finale where Eleanor the Circus Baby Stand-In took over the mantle as the overarching villain. Not that too many people knew that, given even the FNAF Reddit started to care less and less about the plot, especially since now pretty much everyone had agreed it was taking place in an AU, so what was the point of truly caring about the characters and events that happened within it if it never affected or factored into the world we actually care for? In the previous episode, I warned that Nexi could be that potential harbinger, signaling a repeated cycle of diminishing qualities as the series neared its end, similar to the Fazbear Fright series. Nexi's novellas, which I deemed lacking and repetitive, is set a worrisome tone. Could book number seven, Tiger Rock, challenge that premonition? Did it debunk the anticipated decline and instead elevate itself to the benchmark set by the beginning of the Tale series? Well, the answer seems to be a nuanced blend of both possibilities. Nexi had basically been the black sheep in that I regard as I found the book's novellas to be rather lacking. Repeating elements that both previous novellas in the Tales and Fazbear Fright series had done without exactly improving on those ideas or putting a unique spin to them in any positive, memorable capacity. Nexia was basically a repeated lesser version of To Be Beautiful, but without a moral message in its foundation and utilized horde visuals as a way to make up its conclusion feeling somewhat less valuable, despite how cheap it was. Drowning repeated an idea already presented in Under Construction of being trapped within a VR world. However, it did put a twist on the idea of having the character be fully aware of being trapped in a VR world, and how that can mess with our minds and body. Its true faults were that of its overall structure, as related to the antagonist of the story, which it felt like a mystery the story itself wanted to be the main focus, but either didn't have an answer for or simply hit a page limit too early and had to cut it out. Ironically, at least as it pertains to the opinions and critiques of this podcast, the best novella in the collection was the Mimic novella, which told a heart-wrenching emotional story of family, loss, and grief, culminating in a bloodbath that unlike Nexi, the story had actually put in the effort to set up and earned. The only issue the story really had was how it related to the rest of both the Tales books themselves and the overall canon lore, but that's no real fault of its own. That primarily falls on the epilogues and storyteller, as the story's ending in this case is still fulfilling and satisfying. Tiger Rock does, unfortunately, repeat several sins that I had skewered Nexi for, Repeated story elements that don't exactly match the level of quality in the original tales they were presented in. Overuse of gore or blood to overcome a faulty plot as a cheap gimmick to retain readers' interest. And, in one novella in particular, it even bored me so much that I was actively checking the page count throughout. The overarching theme of the collection, that being the inevitability in each character's journey, it really led to a sense of static and sedation instead of tragedy. Each character's respective problems, conflict, and journey are set up with kind of an inevitable conclusion 
that both the reader and soon eventually the characters are clearly knowledgeable of. However, when it comes to any story, whether it be horror or action or even a light read, nothing is more draining and boring to a reader than the sense of no progress being made whatsoever. Progress is the lifeblood of a narrative, and is why only one of these novellas, in my conclusion, is actually really good. It was the only one in which the character's repetitive failures actually enhanced the plot as it related to his emotional struggle. That said, that novella, as well as Tiger Rock's collection in general, it did remind me of a certain type of horror that I am not usually a fan of. And I say horror in audible air quotes because it isn't really a subgenre of horror as it more is a fetishized style of writing. And that is gore porn, or gore prawn as Matthew Patrick would put it. If you are familiar with Fazbear Frights, this is not a light accusation, as that series too was called out on its later entries for its overutilization of grotesque mutilation and desecration of human anatomy to overcome sloppy writing, using shock value to retain some level of interest and memorability in the story it is trying to tell, or finishing up the narrative with it as a cheap way to come to a conclusion. Tales really never came to that yet, the closest being the kills associated around the mimic, but even then, his homicides felt more reminiscent and inspired by 80s and 90s slasher films. The stories in this collection were more uncomfortable, brutal, and eventually null, as it became clear that characters were going to meet their ends, yet never did so in a way that explored the emotional turmoil or got any deeper insight from the pain. I was just waiting for these tortured souls to kick the bucket, both for my sake and the character's own fate. Yeah, Tiger Rock has now taken the new title as my least favorite entry in the Tale series. It is still a marked improvement over Fazbear Frights. I want to get that perfectly clear. I was able to get through all the stories so far in Tales. Some later Fright Tales, I, I simply put down and stopped reading because of how atrocious they were. So when it comes to FNAF books, it is still the worst of the best. But I can't pretend there weren't other things on my nightstand that I would have rather picked up and engaged with instead of these stories. I had Jeanette McCurdy's autobiography resting next to me, but I had to put that on hold for the Monty Within. So before delving into the novellas, a reminder that this First Impressions review will steer clear of spoilers. Any mentions of spoilers will be prefaced with a warning, allowing listeners to skip ahead. Also, before we get into the meat of these stories, I'm regrettably not going to forget this time and instead just rip the band-aid off now and open up our discussion with the epilogue stingers pain that's it Welcome back to channel 842953 Mimic Action News. I am your host, I Wanna Die. Our top story, a man is in critical condition after having swallowed $100,000 in large bills. Doctors report, no change is to be expected. Now returning to our ongoing report, The Mimic, a broken record or breaking records. From our previous reports, The Mimic had absolutely butchered all but two members from the cast of Glee. Now, two girls named Kelly and Lucia remain. After the previous final male in the group, whose name I have all but forgotten, sacrificed himself for the girl he was simping for, and to the surprise of no one, all that resulted was his death as the extremely durable and strong robot was able to escape a room whose only security measure was a lock. 
Lucia, having played Five Nights at Freddy's 2 before, knows that wearing mascot costumes can sometimes confuse stupid robots. And it works, up until the plot demands the Mimic kill another person to retain the status quo. So he crunches every bone in Kelly's body, leaving Lucia as the last living soul within the Freddy Fazbear's pizza place, locked inside with the Mimic. Lucia, being the girl whose simp sacrificed himself to save her. We will return to Mimic News once the story continues in the next book entry. God please, let it be the end. This has been Channel 842953, Mimic Action News, signing off. How do I, you know, leave? Well, don't freak out about it or anything, but, uh, we don't exactly... You can't. Tiger Rock our titular story and the one that primarily focuses on the ongoing Mimic storyline in the lore of the game series, and personally my second favorite of the bundle. Our first novella immerses us in the perspective of Kai, a laid-back young boy with a charismatic presence attributed to his Hawaiian roots. I never really discussed this, but one of the noteworthy elements in FNAF novellas, especially in the Tale series, is the portrayal of characters with diverse cultural traits. I'm not saying FNAF is worldly, after all, even if it doesn't explicitly state it in the books anymore, the series is still pretty much contained within the state of Utah. But it's always nice to expand your horizon and understanding of the world and her people, even if it's for just a brief glimpse, like within these novellas. Anyway, back to the story. Kai's backstory as the child of a Hawaiian mother and how he aptly describes it, his cowboy father, makes for charismatic and charming presence. His two friends, Asher and Todd, are spending their weekend afternoon in the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex, specifically to check out one of the latest attractions of the venue, the Storyteller Tree. According to other students at their school, and some articles Asher had read about it, the Storyteller was a cutting-edge AI program that would generate and feed storylines and dialogue into the characters and attractions of the Pizzaplex. This, of course, is the same storyteller tree we learned about in second novella of book 5, The Bobby Dot's Conclusion, eponymously named The Storyteller. An AI program that was approved by the current head of Fazbear Entertainment, Mr. Burroughs, in an effort to cut expenses. This program, however, was created years before Mr. Burroughs had the idea for it. It was originally given the name Mimic 1, and it was first created by a legacy board member and former Fazbear engineer, Edwin Murray, who, along with Mr. Burroughs, would meet an untimely end inside the Storyteller tree after Edwin began investigating the Storyteller's origin and his concerns over its choice in programming for the animatronics. This is important to remember, because when Kai and his friends reach the Storyteller tree, they find it wrapped up and blockaded with the rope in Stinchions. When Asher asked a close-by janitor about the state of the tree, the janitor simply states that there was some kind of glitch. It's only been up there for three weeks and where amongst the employees is that the higher-ups want it taken down. While Kai and his troop of friends are upset at this news, they decide that there are still several other attractions that they haven't checked out yet in the Pizzaplex, such as the famous AR booths. Because... Absolutely no incidents have ever occurred in the history of Fazbear franchise when they utilized AR technology. Or VR technology. Yeah, this story is another Fazbear VR story, and just like the previous two, I find it absolutely hilarious that no one writing these stories seems to know there is a difference between AR and VR technology. They're interchanged so frequently, even in the same book, in the same novella, despite being two separate things. And the discrepancy doesn't come across as a joke on Fazbear Entertainment's incompetence either. With the benefit of Ruin being released to the FNAF Theorist community's collective deteriorating psyche, I assume this was done in an effort to connect the plots more closely with Ruin's AR vision through Vanny. But anyways, back to Kai. The AR booth's current attraction is a one-day-only feature. The Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplexes decades into the future. Kai decides to go in first, 
getting himself hooked up to the AR booth's chair, goggles, and the rest of the general setup. When it turns on, he opens his eyes in the digital world in a shinier, chromier, and higher tech version of the Mega Pizzaplex. Patrons of the Pizzaplex are wearing clothes that look to have been made out of pure energy. The roller coaster that weaved its way through the Pizzaplex was a fast moving bullet train, and the animatronics themselves had an uncanny makeover. His host that guides him through the futuristic Pizzaplex was the always jovial Glamrock Freddy. But he has had a strange makeover in the digital landscape, being a strange mixture of robotic cartoon character and real-life furry bear. Kai isn't given too much time to ponder on Freddy's strange makeover as the bear doesn't stick around for too long. Instead, after they pass Bonnie Bowl where kids shot rocket-propelled bowling balls, I have no idea how that works, and the Phaser Blast, where the laser guns are described in a totally not skirting around copyright description of a Star Trek phaser, Uncanny Valley Glamrock Freddy passes the duty of host to a brand new mascot for an indoor trampoline attraction, Tiger Rock, a white tiger animatronic with purple highlights and heterochromatic eyes, one blue, the other green adorned with a white rocker jacket with gold trim that would have once been worn by the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. Tiger Rock begins his tour with Kai very modestly, as his speech patterns were a lot more human and realistic compared to both AR Glamrock Freddy, but also the other NPC humans wandering around the AR Plex. Kai is additionally charmed by the Tiger Robot's knowledge. When Tiger Rock introduced himself to him, he greeted Kai with an, oh boy, I'm gonna butcher this, Aloha Anuel. That is not how you pronounce it. Aloha Awanala? Awanala? I apologize, I'm butchering this Hawaiian very bad, but it's Hawaiian for good afternoon. To which the large bipedal tiger responded that he knows a lot of things. In fact, he loves to learn. The only problem is that when Tiger Rock begins to lead Kai, he does so by clamping his metal paws tightly on the boy's arm a grip that increasingly becomes stronger and stronger as Tiger Rock's tour continues. Eventually, Kai becomes concerned that Tiger Rock has an obsession over his arm, noting that even when the white tiger kept his hands to himself, he still always took periodic glances at Kai's appendages, and a tick of his that became a growing concern as despite the entire facade of the AR booth being a simulation, he still felt his arm become sore and bruised from the strain of Tiger Rock's abuse as if it was happening in real life. We, of course, know this to be a gimmick of the mimic. In its introduction in the first Tales book, number one, Lally's Game, the epilogue story set up that the mimic had been reprogrammed by a construction crew with the duty of removing the limbs off endoskeletons. But the mimic corrupted that order, to make it applicable to anything that could be considered an endoskeleton, such as a human skeleton in a human body. So even in this new form, the mimic's programming is servicing through Tiger Rock, which we also know from Tales Number 6 Nexi to be a form it chose because of the animal's association with its creator, Edward Murray's son, David, a boy whom the mimic's observation and duplication process were designed to entertain and keep occupied while his father worked, and whose favorite animal was a white tiger. David even carried a plush toy of a white tiger that the Mimic constantly took note of, and eventually, David and the Mimic made a replica out of linen and scrap so that they both could have matching toys. Now, Kai isn't aware of this information. He does begin to suspect that Tiger Rock is up to foul play, or at the very least is dangerously oblivious to the point that he might accidentally rip Kai's arm off. So he tries to flee from Tiger Rock, but the robot is always right behind him. Even at one point, while Kai was hiding from him in Monty's Gator Golf, Tiger Rock discovers him and inquires if they are playing hide and seek, stating that he learned how to play that game long ago. Upon hearing this, Kai tries to reach out to his physical body and thankfully reawakens in the real world. 
falling out of the AR booth and into a crowd of confused onlookers in the pizzaplex. Kai is, of course, happy to be free from his tormentor, and he's now safely back in reality, and I'll give you two seconds to figure out where this plot is going. Oh, you still need help? What if I tell you that when Kai attempts to go to sleep that night, he's awoken to the sound of an owl, okay? And when he goes to check on it, he discovers it's white with purple highlights and glowing with bleeding green heterochromatic eyes. With no other provocation, a strong gust of wind hits the window he was leaning out of and almost chops his arm off. Care to wager a guess what the plot is about yet? Tiger Rock is woefully the third time Tales repeats the concept of trapped within a video game slash digital world, but unlike Under Construction or Drowning, which both utilize the concepts in unique ways, with Under Construction having the main characters slowly discover their predicament, but are unsure if that is truly reality or if the current reality they are enduring is so traumatic that it is simply easier to accept that she is no longer present in the real world, while Drowning had the perspective character, and by extension the audience, completely aware they are trapped within a video game, and plays with how technology that's connected to our minds can turn a genuinely fun idea into a nightmarish reality. Oh, living in a video game sounds great, until you realize the game you could be trapped in may be security breach. Imagine the terror of a clipping through floors, areas not loading, or other glitches and shenanigans that we accept to be simply logic of how a video game works and operates, and sometimes fumbles. Now apply that to our physical senses. It would be an agonizing repetition of never-ending trauma and fear of the unexpected. Tiger Rock, unfortunately, doesn't really do anything to justify reusing this concept. It does attempt to play the middle ground between Under Construction and Drowning's take on the concept, but it ends up making more so a solid case for why those stories work so much better with their extremities. Unlike its predecessors, Tiger Rock simply doesn't utilize the concept and setting in any meaningful way. Tiger Rock seems to be aware it's not doing anything new beyond having its story connect to the overarching Mimic storyline. So, it attempts to go back to old reliable by injecting ideas from the Fazbear Fright collection. In this case, Fazbear Fright number four's titular novella, Step Closer, a story in which a boy is cursed by a foxing animatronic and is constantly put in dangerous situations where his hand could be cut off or his eye removed. Tiger Rock, similarly, has Kai go through this same situation with Tiger Rock constantly attempting to create scenarios in his fictitious digital realm where Kai loses his limbs. That's not to say I didn't enjoy my time in Tiger Rock. The first half of the novella is very good. Kai is a charismatic protagonist and this side of the mimic was interesting to see, as it's the only time we see it have possibly a personality. Now, we are unsure if Tiger Rock is simply the mimic inhabiting a persona, its voice simply coming through another puppet he has on his strings, but for its brief period of having a character, it was quite interesting. I can't yet say it was good or bad because it was so brief, but at the very least I wasn't turned off from it. The problem with the story comes from the later half, which drags on the Kai being put in scenarios where he may lose a limb bit over and over and over again. And unlike Step Closer, there isn't a sense of both euphoria or family dynamism, where the protagonist could be seen as getting his comeuppance or being taught a lesson on the cruelty of life. There's no B-plot or secondary character journey that is linked to the main plot, so when the story hits this dry period, you're pretty much in it just to see what the next scenario of Kai potentially losing a limb will be. It isn't fun nor engaging once you catch on, it's just repetitive. The strangest part of Tiger Rock is its connection to the rest of the Tale series, with references to both the Mimic, the Storyteller, and the Eblock stories aplenty in the collection. Additionally, there is a quick cameo of Astrid from Tales No. 6 titular story of Nexi, and a scene near the end of the novella is quite possibly referenced 
all the way back in Tales 3, Somnophobia's tale, Clythrophobia, which its opening prelude is a scene in which a bunch of teens are looking at attractions and comment on people gathering and staff looking panicked around the Fazbear AR booths. I will never say that delivering on fan service and expectations aren't always worth it. After all, when expectations are presented to readers or the audience, you commit to crafting the satisfying conclusion you teased us with. We want Frodo to throw the ring in the lava of Mount Doom, but we don't know what the journey will be like to get there. And you know, fan service you throw on the top of there, that is there to accentuate. It's an enhancement, not a focal point. Which it's why I'm genuinely shocked that Tiger Rock did not use its 65 page total, not even once, to drop some more clarifying lore on the mimic. If the whole point of the novella is to spend more time with this character, why even bother with the facade of Tiger Rock? Or at the very least, why spend so much time on the character of Kai? Doubly so when you consider that not once in this collection of stories do they ever attempt to explain how the mimic is somehow both in the storyteller tree as a tiger robot and also locked in the basement in the Freddy Fazbear pizza place as an endoskeleton. No, I'm not even kidding. The story actually makes it so the mimic is in two places at once. The absence of an explanation in this story raises significant questions about how the mimic operates. Does it have the ability to inhabit multiple animatronics simultaneously? While the idea aligns with its control of Vanessa and Gregory to some extent, the narrative leaves us pondering. Why does it seem intent on leaving the Freddy Fazbear's pizza place in its mimic form? If it can seamlessly transition from one animatronic to another, or even one vessel to another, akin to Ultron of the Avengers, what drives its preference for specific bodies? Isn't its sole purpose to observe, record, and repeat? So why does the vessel matter in that regard? Another possibility emerges that this could be a distinct mimic endo introduced in the epilogues as part of the line of robots Fazbear team had developed post-Edwin's departure, Blader shelved. However, the connection between Tiger Rock and the Mimic remains murky, since in Tiger Rock, he too had an obsession with ripping limbs off, a tick that we learned to have been from the programming from the construction crew in the first Tales epilogue, which highly suggests that they are in fact one and the same. But then we go back to square one again, don't we? Because just because the Mimic 1 program was changed in Endoskeleton doesn't simply mean every version of the program adjusts to these changes. If Tiger Rock and the Mimic are indeed the same entity, the story raises even more questions. Are each instance of the Mimic, the one in the basement, Tiger Rock, Glitchtrap, and whatever influences Gregory's mind, distinct variations? If so, how and why do these versions of the Mimic recognize each other's presence and coordinate efforts? Many specific pursuit of the Mimic in Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place during Security Breach as another layer of complexity. Why would her version of the Mimic in her mind drive her to tunnel to the pizza place, especially if she might have knowledge of its existence? Ah! Five out of ten. Average story is average. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For ninety dollars more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For hundred and thirty more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just three hundred dollars more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy. Always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May tenth. See Home Club for details. Hey, bro, what do you want to eat? The souls of the innocent. A bagel. No! Two bagels. The Monty Within, our second novella in book number seven, and our Pizzaplex-centered story of the collection. If Tiger Rock's tension in conflict is centered around an AI trapping your mind within a digital landscape, what if instead that AI trapped itself inside of your mind in the physical world? This story follows Kane, a senior high school baseball player with a lot to think about and a lot on his plate. The final weeks of Kane's senior year have been quite busy between caring for his nerdy 13-year-old brother Archer, maintaining his status as his school star hitter, and writing his college application essays. As the semester draws to a close, Kane's final project involves a public speech on any topic he deems interesting. He attempts to explain the topic he chose to his girlfriend on their anniversary date. 
which he takes her to the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex, because a year ago, he had taken his girlfriend, Sienna, on their first date to the old Freddy Fazbear Pizzeria. God damn it. It's, it's frustrating. I, I know, I know. Because the story mentions this, it almost implies that... Because when the story mentions this, it almost implies that the time between FFPS in the building of the Pizzaplex and thus to the development of the Freddy Fazbear virtual experience was little more than a year, which I call bullshit on. The events between FFPS and Phasma Entertainment's revival did not happen in under a year. That's just not possible. Luckily, we may have an out. Due to Kane and Sienna calling the pizzeria they ate at Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria and not Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place, an argument could be made that they are referring to a rundown Fazbear Entertainment venue that was still in operation even after the company's dissolvement. We have precedence for this since Submechnophobia established that after Fazbear Entertainment went bankrupt the first time around, their classic characters can be used without infringing on their copyright. As Freddy's Fantasy Water Park reopened its doors after the Mega Pizzaplex started making waves, and that story establishes pretty early on that despite sharing brand-named characters, both are operated separately of one another. Given this, it isn't completely unbelievable that a Freddy's Pizzeria was still in operation at the time. It's just, just because it's unbelievable doesn't mean it's not really hard to believe, given we know that the Mega Pizzaplex is located in Hurricane, Utah, and the idea of a second Freddy establishment operating in a similar time frame of FPS, it just kind of makes that plot of the game a bit more incredulous. But that's an issue as it pertains to the water lore. What about the story itself? Well, Kane's oral presentation is about the human brain. His presentation, which he titles The AI Within, delves into a theoretical discussion on the human brain, drawing insights from research spanning the late 1700s to the 1990s. Kane's central theory posits that the left side of our brain operates akin to a non-sentient computer, functioning as a word processing and data processing program. In this framework, the left brain's role is to make us productive, comparable to an artificial intelligence. Kane then emphasizes that the right side of our brain represents our sentience. He explores his implication of this theory, suggesting that negative self-talk and self-talk in general originates from this computer-like aspect of our minds. And according to Kane, the absence of a balanced interplay between the left and right brain can lead to behavioral problems. He then argues that individuals could enhance their lives by cultivating an awareness of this non-sentient facet and dance in our minds. Now, truth be told, I'm unsure how much of this is science, like truly factual scientific studies, or if this is just the writer performing science speak. But it does make me curious if the purpose of this story is to go more in depth of how Glitztrap's influence is supposed to work within Vanessa and Gregory. The comparison of the left brain being more akin to a computer and the right are more human emotional does give the credence to this might be the case. So following his speech, Kane opts to spend the day with his younger brother at the Freddy Fazbear's Mega Pizzaplex. Amid several rounds of air hockey, Kane notices a sign advertising a new game called Fazcade Tag Team. It's basically Fazbear Fury, the uh, joke game Scott released before Secure Bridge launched. It's a virtual food fight battle royale, which pits players against another group on the opposite side of the Pizzaplex's main atrium. Participants select their preferred Fazbear animatronic, and then are paired with another animatronic that synchronizes with their brain and subconscious. Intrigued by the prospect of working with an AR partner that adheres to his instructions, Kane sees this as a playful way to manifest his theoretical ideas in his presentation, and decides to try it out with his little brother. While his little brother Archer picks out Bonnie, Kane decides to be Orville Elephant, an obscure Fazbear Entertainment character that he mentions to come for the Freddy Fazbear Pizzeria Simulator game. Nope, nope, not touching that. There have been too many segues in this discussion as it is. The game partners Archer up with Glamrock Chica, while Kane is aligned with Montgomery Gator. Utilizing his coordination skills that he developed from baseball and observing other players, 
Kane surprisingly excels in the game. Not that he is wholly focused on the gameplay. Instead, he is more astute on studying how the game is operating. Over time, he discerns that Monty mirrors his moves. He observes that when he concentrates on Orville's actions, Monty experiences glitches and freezes, whereas letting Orville go idle allows Monty to move freely, replicating Kane's gameplay. When he decides to focus more on these controls, he notices a golden glowing circle above his head in the shape of a halo. The pulsating light of the circle subtly echoes the oscillations of brainwaves, leading Kane to believe that the game somehow taps into his biological AI. The following day, Kane struggles to concentrate due to the lingering curiosity of the food fight game, causing those close to him to become annoyed from his absent-mindedness, especially his girlfriend. So to determine to regain his focus, he resolves to revisit the food fight machine one last time. Opting for Orville once more, Kane finds himself automatically paired with Monty again, who appears to recognize him. Similar to the previous day, Monty freezes when Kane overanalyzes, and he seamlessly follows Kane's lead when in the flow. Intrigued, Kane directs his attention to that pulsating light above him, and in an attempt to decipher its purpose, Kane begins fiddling with it, and inadvertently causing a short circuit that disrupts all the power in the entire game room and gives him a nasty shock. I guess Fazbear staff weren't monitoring anyone while playing this seemingly expensive game setup? Great job, Fazbear Entertainment, S-tier move. A upon returning home, Kane observes a notable shift in his mental dialogue. An emergence of a newfound, impulsive, aggressive, and adversarial thought process. Upon gazing into the mirror, he's then taken aback as the right side of his face winks back at him. It now becomes evident that Monty from the game has somehow infiltrated his mind during the short circuit incident. Monty now manifests as a voice in Kane's head, mirroring his in-game behavior. Whenever Kane is idle, not moving his body, Monty assumes control, manipulating Kane's physical actions. But when Kane is focused, he's only an abstract voice in the back of his head. The remainder of the story plays out Unfortunately, very similar to Tiger Rock. The situation and conflict has been created which results in a repetitive journey where Kane is constantly put in scenarios where Monty abuses his unwanted position in Kane's mind to cause Kane to act erratic or say things he didn't mean to say. But unlike Tiger Rock or Step Closer, which uses this narrative ploy to maintain interest and play with the concept they are working with, the Monty Within's biggest fault is that the character isn't really in any true danger throughout. Instead, Monty just makes Kane act in cringe-inducing manner for the remaining last half of the novella. It, it, it reminds me more of a Family Odd Parents episode, where Timmy's wishes for something, where Timmy wishes for something, like his childhood imaginary friend Gary to be real, but then his wish that he believed to be a blessing turns out to be a nuisance. A fine enough plot for an 11 minute cartoon full of slapstick and silly situations, but an over 60 page story set in a horror themed novella collection? I would argue it overstays its welcome. So unlike the tension filled stories of the past where you're gripped by the plot suspense, fearing for the characters lives and eagerly anticipating a potential escape from the protagonist's torment, or where the narrative skillfully exploits the concept of a bad situation escalating through one's mental perception, the Monty within fails to provide any indication of possible relief from Kane's enduring plight. And the absence of a real solution or any real threat to the problem or danger results in the reading experience being overall unsatisfactory. It doesn't leave you disturbed or on the edge of your seat or even for the comedic situations that this plot could theoretically produce, frankly, this marks the first instance during my exploration of a Tales novella that I found myself repeatedly checking the page count, eagerly anticipating the moment I could move on. Rereading it for the podcast was a dread. I hated it. In some ways, I dislike the Monty Within more than animatronic apocalypse, at least in a story as objectively bad and insane 
as that one. There is some levity in how ridiculous it is, made even more comical by how serious that, pardon my language, this batch plot takes itself. The Monty Within is just... cringe horror? If that is a genre at all we can label it as? Even the ending is a bit abrupt and reminded me of how Nexi ended, where the writers seemingly didn't know how to end the plot they were given, so they just decided the best alternative to a satisfactory conclusion is to make it memorable by describing the grossest visuals they can muster given the circumstances. I can't go into any more details without spoiling it, so let's just finish this off with my rating. I'll give The Monty Within a 3 out of 10. I can't award or applaud it, and even grant it below average, because I think the concept of the story is good, yet it feels wasted in a story like this. The plot has no progression once Monty infiltrates Kane's brain, and the result in the story being sedative until the last few pages. Contradictory information from the old Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria to mention FFPS by name makes it feel like this novella wasn't even checked to ensure that it maintained consistency with the FNAF world building. While Animatronic Apocalypse was so bad that I could at least revel in its insanity, The Monty Within is so boring that I'd rather light a $5 bill on fire than subject myself to reading it again. play a sad song for you on the world's smallest violin. Bleeding Heart, our final novella to discuss, and our Fazbear Fright tale to end it all off. These stories often have very little to do with the lore of the series and rarely ever do they involve the Pizzaplex or sometimes even the time frame of Security Breach itself. B7, Submechnophobia, Animatronic Apocalypse, they're all such examples of this. But Bleeding Heart decides to change up the formula a little bit. Not in it being very lore-heavy, it really isn't, but instead involving more of the Pizzaplex. Centered around a middle schooler named Danny, the narrative delves into his infatuation with a girl named Daisy at his school, both occupying the fringes of their school's social circles. Danny, a bit of a nerd, and Daisy, a bit of a tomboy. They share a unique connection, at least that's what Danny thinks. Danny is particularly drawn to Daisy's charm, most notably the star tattoo adorning her wrist, which makes her appear more rebellious. Given that, at home, Danny navigates life as the middle child, sandwiched between his three-and-a-half-year-old brother Johnny and his high school senior brother Bobby, and with his father away until just before Christmas, and his mother fully engaged as a dental assistant, Danny often finds herself leading a somewhat neglected existence. Despite this, he attempts to bridge the gap with Daisy, expressing his feelings through art. He draws her in his distinctive style and discreetly places the pictures in her locker. Although, his previous efforts were met with disappointment when he discovered a crumpled drawing next to her locker that he had made. As fate would have it, the events of the story unfold around the holiday season for Danny. Following an extensive Christmas shopping spree with the family, Danny's mom treats her boys to a festive day at the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex. The animatronic band, adorned as Santa Claus and his elves, roam the premises. Fazbear-style wreaths and Christmas trees embellish every corner, accompanied by the festive resonance of holiday music echoing throughout the Pizzaplex. Amid the holiday cheer, Danny and his older brother Bobby find themselves isolated from the rest of their family in the Fazcade. Seizing the opportunity, Danny decides to seek relationship advice from Bobby, who, in his characteristic big brotherly manner, playfully teases Danny about his crush. However, Bobby means well and ultimately offers valuable guidance, suggesting that Danny buy a gift for Daisy to introduce himself with, and points out a Santa-themed giftplex gift shop conveniently located across from the arcade. As Danny heads towards the Santa giftplex area, he catches an announcement from Dread Unit that the Mega Pizzaplex will be closing in 15 minutes. Amidst the variety of traditional Christmas gifts, snow globes, jackets, scarves, and gloves, Danny stumbles upon a gift wrapping booth. Here, wrapping paper is 
magically colored, wrapped, and precisely cut around presents as if done by unseen hands. And adjacent to this booth, there's a similar machine where kids can insert their arms to have tattoos pinned on, but still looks like it's just done by magic. Driven by a desire to impress Daisy, Danny decides to investigate the mysterious effects of these machines. Perhaps he could figure out how the tattoo machine works and gift that to Daisy. As the Pizzaplex begins to close, he discreetly opens up the machine's maintenance hatch. If discreetly can be described as bashing and putting pressure on it as quietly as possible. Inside both machines, Danny discovers a vast consortium of nanobots, each no larger than a grain of rice. Eager to impress Danny, eager to impress Daisy, Danny decides to pilfer some of these nanobots, concealing them in his pocket. However, upon reaching home, he realizes they're gone, presumably having escaped from his pocket as he fled the closing pizzaplex. The next day, Danny goes to the library to draw. There, he sees Daisy reading a tattoo book at the far corner table and decides to approach and ask her, as awkwardly as possible, what tattoo she wants. Daisy is surprisingly open and says she wants a small, simple heart tattoo on the side of her body. Danny, in an attempt to share some commonality with her, lies and says he would want one too. And the moment his final utterance of those words leave his lips, Danny feels a sharp twinge of pain in his sides and rushes to the bathroom to find a small heart carved into his flesh and his clothes stained with blood. Danny hurries to his locker and Daisy approaches him concerned wondering what was wrong. Danny decides to show Daisy the carving, and Daisy is impressed with his precision and speed. Just to reiterate, the problem Danny has is that the small nanobots he grabbed were not the ones that ink tattoos. They were the ones that cut wrapping paper. Those nanobots cut into Danny's skin and are currently inside of him, still ready to take orders now that they have been removed from their station. Hence, why when Danny said he wanted a heart-shaped tattoo, they got to work immediately and cut into his skin and scarred a heart into his side. Daisy, in all accounts and with no way of articulating or interpreting it in any other capacity, just said she thought the fact that a boy cutting himself was cool. Oh, this is going to end splendidly. I can already tell. The story, guess what? In a similar manner of Tiger Rock and the Monty Within, repeats a lot. I guess repetition is another theme shared in between the novellas. But unlike Tiger Rock and Monty Within, where the repetition of the conflict the character faces are either cringeworthy or simply one where the reader is already aware of the circumstances so they're just waiting for the inevitable conclusion of the character to make to understand their predicament. The conflict found in this plot is so much more interesting due to Danny's confliction to figuring out a way to get rid of the nanobots, which are slowly killing him. But they are also the only thing that now attaches him to this euphoric feeling of happiness by being with a girl he feels warm to. Very similar to B7, the tragedy works well because the story is rooted more in the character rather than solely relying on the concept alone. In this case, it's emotional storytelling since Daisy is really only interested in Danny because of his carvings. Daisy even keeps asking Danny to keep making them on his body with various more intricate and larger designs, even once willing and without directly saying it threatening to leave him and hang out with other people once he said he didn't want to cut himself anymore. I, I don't want to come across as pretentious, but I believe this is the key distinction that sets Bleeding Heart apart from other novellas in the collection with similar plot progressions. In Tiger Rock, Kai is merely an undeserving pawn of the mimic, and in The Monty Within, Kane is just too curious for his own good. In these cases, the torment the characters endure is more of a byproduct of external forces, largely disconnected from the characters themselves. 
If you were to place Kai with one of his friends, the plot of Tiger Rock would remain unchanged. Kane's tormentor is related to his project, but beyond understanding his circumstances, nothing of it comes from a character or revelatory standpoint. Creating a stronger link between the plot and the character's emotional struggles is what makes stories more personal and memorable. And in the case of Bleeding Heart, as we witness the continuous train wreck of Danny's decision-making, we hope that, perhaps this time, Danny will realize the pain he inflicts on himself isn't worth it, and he needs to let go of his pursuit of Daisy. This aligns well with the thematic essence proudly embraced by the story, encapsulated in its title, Bleeding Heart. As categorized by Merriam-Webster when it pertains to story writing, quote, The term bleeding heart appears in literature describing sincere emotional outpouring, even taking on literal association with the heart of Jesus Christ. End quote. Before bleeding heart became a formal phrase, the concept of hearts bleeding as a genuine emotional expression was a prevalent theme in arts and literature. Over time, this notion evolved, acquiring a literal association in religious writings and iconography, particular depictions of the heart of Jesus Christ. It found resonance in religious speeches and writings that referenced Jesus' expression of sorrow on behalf of the poor, the sick, or the struggling. But every virtue that exists can become twisted. Even if self-sacrifice is one of the greatest virtues of humanity, the selflessness where you are willing to put others before yourself, there exist people who would take advantage of that generosity and use it for their own desires. Bleeding Heart, as depicted in the Tales book, masterfully employs its central concept to convey a poignant theme. Danny's act of sacrificing his time and energy by quite literally carving parts of himself for the girl of his dreams serves as a powerful metaphorical narrative. The story skillfully intertwines visual and action elements with thematic and narrative choices. As the narrative unfolds, we witness Danny gradually weakening, a direct consequence of his relentless sacrifices. Meanwhile, Daisy offers little in return, creating an unfair and toxic relationship dynamic. The story effectively highlights the destructive nature of this imbalance, emphasizing that if Danny persists on this path, it could lead to his literal demise. I'm not suggesting that every story needs to be as intricate as a bleeding heart to be inherently good, but it's a fundamental aspect of excellent writing, which is precisely what I seek in these tales books. A compelling story and a cast of characters that captivate and entertain me. And, if at all possible, leave me with something to take away and think on as an aspect to improve my own life or my own worldview. Not every narrative requires numerous layers like that. One of my all-time favorite TV shows, Columbo, is a prime example. It's a brilliant detective show featuring the outstanding Peter Falk, and each episode follows a similar structure with different nuances. The central plot revolves around a criminal committing a murder and trying to conceal the act. The intrigue lies in the interaction between the detective and the criminal, keeping the audience engaged with the game of wits and how Columbo will finally catch his prey. What I seek in these tales books is to be engrossed and entertained, whether through a more carefree atmosphere or tension-filled dread. However, when a story goes the extra mile with its storytelling techniques and symbolism, it elevates the entire experience. In the case of Bleeding Heart, its success lies in the personal elements that foster a stronger connection to the plot and a genuine attachment to the character of Danny. And I think that is the salient point for why this story was my favorite, but the former failed to really connect with me. I felt something for Danny. I along with many other people, have heard stories or know someone who gave themselves up, soul and all, to a partner who did not reciprocate that selfless gesture. I rate Bleeding Heart an 8 out of 10. This novella 
is truly remarkable and could easily contend for a spot in the top 5 within the Tales collection, perhaps even top 10 among the FNAF novellas. If you decide to pick up Tales number 7, I highly recommend picking it up just for this one. While it may lack significant lore contributions and isn't ideal for theory crafting, it offers a gripping and suspenseful ride, reminiscent of the ever-evolving downward spiral of B7, a story delving into the murky waters with an ever-enticing question percolating throughout. How deep is someone willing to go to keep a lie alive in an effort to secure their happiness? And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. I have been your host, Nick, and I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.